Media is a powerful tool that shapes our everyday lives. But how do others worldwide engage with media and harness its power for social change? Some of the themes that really begin to emerge from this work are thinking about the ways in which minority groups, and in particular those who are responding to cultural and societal shifts, are represented within media and how they engage with these representations. So my work looks at how minority groups, specifically women, diasporas, and other groups, experience these feelings of in-betweenness with, and engage with media. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. In this episode of Campus on the Common, we'll talk with Dr. Azita Hatif about empowering underrepresented groups through media. Dr. Azita Hatif, welcome to Campus on the Common. Thanks so much for having me here today. Indeed, it's our pleasure. Now, I understand that you spent some time in the Czech Republic with the Roma community. Could you talk about that experience? Yeah, absolutely. So I've spent a couple of years working in Czech Republic focused on Romi communities and their engagement with media in particular. And so, of course, there's been a great amount of research that looks at the ways in which Roma have been represented in media. So there has been, of course, long enduring stereotypes. And what we start to see is that when there is a vacuum of representation within media, we see how media in particular, when there is this this vacuum, uh, media tend to fill this void. And so as a result, you start to see very limited and perhaps even damaging portrayals. For example, when I was in the Czech Republic and I spoke to a lot of the different activists that they would tell me about the ways in which news media in the Czech Republic would attach criminality to Roma. And you'd oftentimes see these stereotypes presenting Roma as nomadic people or possessing supernatural powers. And so one of the groups of activists that I had worked very closely with during my time in the Czech Republic were creating a way in which they can respond to the damaging and limited portrayals of Roma in Czech media. And so this group of activists were creating their own online TV platform to be able to tell the stories of Roma through their own perspective. So with that, let's take a quick look at what actually is Roma and what seems to be the situation between the Roma community and the Czech community. Sure, sure. So Roma, of course, is an umbrella term that's used to describe a very heterogeneous group with diverse belong linguistic, religious, and cultural ties. For Roma and the Czech Republic in particular, they currently make about approximately 2 to 3% of the population, and they have experienced these decades of persecution. And, of course, the, with activists that I spoke with, they talk about the different ways in which this manifests through educational segregation, lack of access to quality health care and housing. And so for Rome in particular, um, I looked at this from the perspective of media representation, but there's a lot about the cultural tensions here, too. Are there any unique aspects of Roma as a oppressed minority within the Czech Republic? Are they the only minority within the Czech Republic? It just seems interesting that this is a big, sophisticated country, and they're having issues with, is it just one particular group? I'm trying to get a better understanding of the situation there in terms of the cultural differences within that 
relatively small European country. Right. So, of course, there are different uh, minority groups in the Czech Republic. There is a group of Vietnamese and Ukrainian immigrants within the country. But, of course, with Rome in particular, they've experienced persecution throughout Europe. And so the Czech Republic, of course, has its unique tension. But what becomes interesting is the different ways in which this kind of manifests. And, of course, this can be very similar to different issues that are already present in the Czech Republic right now. When I was there, um, with a good part of my research that took place in 2018, there was a presidential election taking place. And so you start to see a lot of this rhetoric about immigrants and othering. And of course, uh, Roma kind of folded into that conversation too. And of course, it's been you know, um, a big part of the conversation in the Czech Republic too. You had mentioned that you'd worked with activists that are trying to do something about it. I wondered if you could tell us more about their activities. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, the group of activists that I worked very closely with during my time in the Czech Republic, a lot of them had come from different backgrounds in media, of course, and different experiences with NGOs. And so they had a very good understanding of what is going on in the Czech Republic and from their experiences being Roma and these different expertise, too. They were able to kind of think they were thinking through the ways in which they can respond to a lot of the negative experiences and damaging portrayals of Rama, right? And so there's one activist in particular who told me that, you know, quote, it's everything about us without us. And what he meant by that is that they've had an incredible amount of challenges and obstacles to be able to tell their stories in these different spaces through Czech media. And they go in depth about a lot of the issues and being able to speak to mainstream sources and be able to highlight these different stories and experiences. And so through this, right, and so they, because they weren't able to access these particular spaces to tell their stories, groups came together with this idea of creating their own online TV platform. Um, and it was very fascinating to see the ways in which the group was uh, focusing on different types of programs that they hoped to put together. And uh, the focus of this platform in particular, um, and one of the activists in particular had highlighted for me when we were talking one day about the purpose of these different television shows and the programs that they were hoping to put together. And what he tells me is that, quote, we're creating a new Roma identity. And it was really fascinating to, to reflect on this and kind of talk about this further within our conversation where he essentially has seen this as a space, right, where a television program that would allow Roma to see their lives reflected in the media they engage with, right? And so, you know, who, people who look similar and speak similarly to the way they do and challenge these one-dimensional portrayals of Roma. And so this method of production allows for Roma to create and negotiate their identities from the ground up by also using these conventions of entertainment television, which is really incredible, right? And I think this idea of going back of creating a new Roma identity is really fascinating where this has been kind of at the, the foundational part of the creation of this online TV platform where it's their idea of the group of activists is we're presenting Roma in roles that depart from stereotypical portrayals, navigating these same situations that non-Roma do, right? So it's this idea that we are presenting a very fair and realistic portrayal of, of Roma, right? It's not that uh, Roma are asking to have these uber-positive representations, but this idea of having realistic and fair representations of their experiences and identities. That's fascinating. Now, when we look at Roma TV and the, and the media that's being generated for this community, will it go past just the Roma community? Will it 
filter itself into mainstream Czech society. What's the role in terms of expanding the mainstream's acceptance of the Roma community within that country? That's a really good question, right? So um, when I was there in the Czech Republic, this project was in its infancy, right? So this was uh, when it was just starting up and we, the group was talking about different programs. And I was able to um, watch one of the pilot programs, which was really fascinating to see the ways in which this was all coming together. And so I think it raises a couple of very interesting questions and challenges, too, here. So in talking to the different activists who are putting this program together, the idea was that first and foremost, that this would be a program for Roma, by Roma, right? So it's this idea that Roma can see their lives and experiences represented in a way that perhaps they don't see in mainstream Czech medium. And so in talking to these different activists, I, I know one of the activists who really knew the, the project, she was telling me about the ways in which the hope is that this would open up that conversation, right, that there would be this kind of intercultural dialogue between uh, Roma and non-Roma, right? And so that you'd be able to just kind of flip through the channels and come across this program, right? And one of the very interesting examples that one of the activists shared with me is talking about a show that was very similar, but the format was adopted in for the Czech Republic, but of wife swap. Um, and so she was talking about the ways in which um, they had a few Rom Romani families on here that had a very fair representation of Roma. Um, and so she talked about the ways in which sometimes television can be a lot more activist in nature than these different protests that they were putting together. So it was really interesting to, to see the ways in which she talked about the hope and potential of having these larger conversations um, within the Czech Republic. And so I think there are a few points that um, are important to highlight here. Of course, this isn't that it's going to be within Czech media. This is going to be like an online format. So there is the potential right, where people may not necessarily come across this as you would if you were flipping through the channels um, on your t television station, right? So here in particular, it's slightly different where there are some challenges, but I think what's really important, the key takeaway part here are the ways in which this platform is really created for Roma. So of course, there is the aim from a lot of these activists to be able to have this as space for larger discussions among Roma and non-Roma, but I think what's also really important is that it's important for Roma to also see their lives and experiences reflected within media, and so uh, that was a big part of it, that this is for Roma. Fantastic. Now, this approach, building a community through media, is this unique to the Roma community within the Czech Republic? Because I think I've heard that you've been involved with similar activities in other countries. I'm wondering if you could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, this, of course, um, a big part of my research when we zoom out is some of the themes that really begin to emerge from this work are thinking about the ways in which minority groups, in particular those who are responding to cultural and societal shifts, are represented within media and how they engage with these representations. So my work looks at how minority groups, specifically women, diasporas, and other groups, experience these feelings of in-betweenness and engage with media. And so what I mean by in-betweenness is this idea of not fully feeling at home in either place, right? And a lot of people who perhaps lead uh, bicultural lives or these 
hyphenated identities, uh, begin to speak about the ways in which uh, you don't fully feel home in these different identities and experiences. So perhaps, um, you know, being Afghan-American, you don't fully feel Afghan, you don't fully feel American, but you kind of find yourself oscillating between these spaces in between. And so I think what becomes really interesting and some of the parts that I take part and in really investigate in my work is looking at how these groups, right, people and, and individuals and communities and groups engage with these representations, especially if they are part of minority groups which either do not have much representation with the media or are portrayed in very stereotypical and one-dimensional ways. The research that I do, um, I have worked in different areas um, in addition to most recently doing work in the Czech Republic. A great part of my research is situated in Afghanistan. Um, and I've been really interested in examining the ways in which, of course, Afghan women are represented in media um, here in the U.S. context, but also the ways in which people engage with media content, too. Interesting. Your point about in-betweenness, I think, is fascinating. When you look at, and let's use the United States as an example, we've got mainstream Caucasian society. We've got a number of other groups that make up our overall country. Oftentimes, we don't hear about the in-between groups. They're underrepresented within the media. What it sounds like is your research is focused around looking at those particular groups and giving them a voice, providing the means to create a community, which I think that's something that's very well needed. The question I'd have for you in Afghanistan is I understand Afghanistan is made up of a variety of different cultural groups. How do you go after the in-betweenness when you're dealing with a, one country with so many different cultural groups within that country? Wouldn't there be huge spaces for that in-betweenness to occur? And if that's correct, how do we account for that by creating media within those gaps? So I think... In thinking about this idea of in-betweenness, and especially in Afghanistan and different places, it's not exclusive to just one experience because I think um, with how complex and diverse our different experiences and identities are, we can experience this in-betweenness in a lot of different ways. So I think in Afghanistan in particular, right, um, there are, of course, different ethnic groups and there are different ways in which um, folks may experience certain levels and degrees of feeling um, at home in certain experiences and identities or not. Um, I think what becomes really interesting in the point that you made about voice, um, a big part of my research is situated in, in talking about voice in particular. And so uh, one of the things, the things that I talk about in my classrooms and a lot of my research are the ways in which, um, and I see this really highlighted when, with the work that I did in the Czech Republic too, and a lot of different activists will echo this point, is that a lot of folks have been using their voices, right? They've been very loud and very clear. But the challenge has been is um, who's been listening, right? And how silenced these voices have been, um, not from their own doing, but the ways in which um, perhaps we should be thinking about it in listening. Are we actually listening to the folks who are using their voices and asking and demanding certain types of change? And so um, I think, of course, in Afghanistan, it's interesting in that context is something that I'd like to um, explore a little further in particular, um, as most of my research does look at the representation from the perspective of, like, the U.S., too, in the way the U.S. constructs. Afghan women within mediated representation. You know, one of the things that I'm interested in is when we look at the recent history of Afghanistan, it's gone from a time when the Taliban was in power and there was essentially a media blackout to where they are today. 
Could you talk about the evolution of Afghani media? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, as you mentioned, right, um, there was a media blackout in Afghanistan from, you know, essentially 1996 to 2001 where there wasn't much media at all. You did have uh, a radio station, Radio Sharia, which was essentially like an extension, uh, a mouthpiece uh, for the Taliban. Um, and so there wasn't much media in that particular way. Um, after 2001, right, um, with essentially, you know, quote-unquote the fall of the Taliban, there was this uh, reemergence of, of media from all over um, within Afghanistan. And so there were a lot of different organizations and groups that were coming through to help create um, media and restructure media within the country. And so it became really fascinating to see how quickly all of this had really changed. And so uh, some of the work that I've done alongside uh, one of my uh, colleagues, Dr. Tanner Cook, uh, we've looked at the evolution of independent media within Afghanistan. And we have been taking a look at um, some of the political and economic structures that have helped build and recreate independent media in the country. Um, we focus, of course, on uh, one of the largest uh, media organizations within the country, Moby Group, and how they've uh, played a part in helping really revolutionize the ways in which we think about independent media in the country. And so there's been, of course, a boom with uh, media and the ways in which we see a lot of different global adaptations of different programs um, in Afghanistan. We also see a lot of uh, content that's being created there in the country. Um, and there's a lot of interesting ways in which we see these global flows. Um, of information and also the ways in which money has been kind of flowing throughout here too from this economic perspective. The research that I did in Afghanistan uh, focuses on the cosmetic surgery industry. And so from my perspective, when I had first learned about cosmetic surgery um, and its use in Afghanistan, I was a bit surprised to understand that, you know, um, there is this high demand for um, aesthetic and elective surgery in the country. And um, as someone who's trained in media and seeing the ways in which um, there's a lot of flow from all over the world into Afghanistan with these different types of programs in the country, what became really interesting to me were to uh, set out to explore some of the um, underpinnings and some of the motivations for people who are interested in seeking out cosmetic surgery. And so the work that I did in Afghanistan um, surrounding cosmetic surgery uh, was very interesting because this was a moment in which there was a lot of change that was taking place in Afghanistan. And through this perspective, a lot of um, people that I spoke with, especially a lot of the surgeons who were men, uh, talked about the ways in which, you know, there's a lot more freedom in Afghanistan now. Um, and a lot of people attributed cosmetic surgery to um, some of the freedoms and success for women's rights in the country. Um, and it became very interesting to really explore this, where cosmetic surgery was very much framed as this individual choice, as it typically is, uh, rather than a response to a lot of the complex systems that promote limited global beauty ideals. And so it was really fascinating in the work that I did there to kind of explore um, the complexity of these body-altering practices um, and this empowerment discourse that came about throughout in a lot of the different conversations that I had with people, it was interesting to see the ways in which that really dissolved, right, um, when we really investigate 
you know, like this idea about now that you have freedom and choice, you're going to elect cosmetic surgery. Um, it's interesting to see the ways in which there's a lot more to that, right? It's a very complex global beauty economy. Um, and from my perspective, it was very interesting to see the ways in which choice, right, how women had thought about their agency, um, ethnic and class politics, and these ideas of consumerism had really um, pervaded these different spaces. And it was really interesting to talk to a lot of these women who had either um, had some of these procedures or were in the process of, um, you know, having a procedure done, uh, talk about some of their experiences and some of the motivations behind, behind seeking cosmetic surgery. I'd be very fascinated to know what were some of the motivations behind their decision to have some kind of altered surgery? So there are, of course, a few different motivations. Um, there were a lot of these interpersonal um, motivations, too. So um, some of the women that I spoke with talked about the ways in which a significant other had, um, you know, talked about perhaps, you know, some of the procedures that they would like uh, for their partner to have. Um, but it was also very interesting to see a lot of the external uh, pressures, and that's an, a really important part of this, even from my perspective as someone who um, is trained in the media studies aspect. It was interesting to see the ways in which um, a lot of these young women, and there are women that I had interviewed, and of course this isn't exclusive just to women, but just for this project that I was working on, I worked with women who were um, consumers of cosmetic surgery. And so what became really fascinating here were a lot of these different factors with um, a lot of the media that the women had talked about. And so, you know, um, there are a lot of individuals who talked about a recent Indian actress and how they want to replicate some of these features. Or, you know, there are women who'd come to clinics with photographs of uh, their favorite celebrities from around the world, right? Um, and so it's really interesting to see the ways in which these different um, beauty ideals uh, were no longer just about um, traditionally what we think about um, is just, you know, um, tall, blonde hair, fair skin, but it was this very global idea of beauty, which, of course, is rooted in these very westernized ideals of beauty ideals. Um, but it's interesting, nevertheless, to see some of these factors that really motivated these women, um, both the interpersonal ones, but, of course, these ones uh, really around um societal changes that were taking place during this time, too. So I think, uh, you know, for many of the women, in the study, cosmetic surgery was presented as a practice that allowed them more perceived control over their bodies, which was really interesting to kind of think about um, the freedom, in a sense, to do what this woman wants with her body. Um, and for others, cosmetic surgery was at times filtered through different individuals, and sometimes these were significant others. Um, and so it's interesting to think about the ways in which uh, social mobility and these different factors played a role. Um, and at times, women's ideals of beauty were very much influenced by a lot of the media that they were in engaging with, and that was a big part of my um, interest in looking at this process where um, women would travel to these clinics from far distances to be able to replicate a lot of the images of um, their favorite celebrities, too. And so cosmetic surgery in this way was really interesting, the ways in which um, there were different motivations and also um, aspirations here, too. Dr. Atif, could you give the audience three takeaways from your research? Absolutely. So I think... 
three main takeaway points that I have is, um, from my perspective as someone who really studies media, is it's important for uh, communities and groups to see their lives reflected in the media they engage with. And this goes, of course, beyond superficial storylines and one-dimensional portrayals. Um, our identities and our experiences are incredibly complex, and, of course, that should be reflected in media we engage with. This is uh, particularly important for minority and displaced groups and identities that experience um, different feelings of place and belonging, right? Whether that's here, there, home. Um, media representations help negotiate um, some of these identities and experiences, which of course leads me to the second point that um, media are very critical to our understanding of imagined futures and our sense of belonging. Uh, when we see characters that perhaps we identify with that are presented in very limited ways within media, this could also limit our imagination too, right? The ways in which we see ourselves and the ways in which others see us as well. Um, and this leads me to the final point that um, the development of alternative spaces to tell these stories become key to really circumventing some of the structures that have denied a lot of groups space to be able to tell their stories. So kind of taking it back to these conversations we've had about voice and belonging, um, media are critical and helping us understand our experiences and our identities and play um, a pretty significant role here. So it's really important for us to see that when uh, these spaces are so exclusive, um, a response here is to create that space so that uh, communities and groups and different individuals and uh, diverse groups can really see their lives and experiences reflected in the media in a fair and representative way. Dr. Azita Hatif is a media researcher and award-winning instructor. Her scholarly interests focus on issues of social media as activism for underrepresented groups, gender and identity, and media systems in a global context. I'm Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. We had studio help from executive producer, Lucas Poyser. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.